Sorry, Stu. Yeah. I might quit while I'm behind, I think. Today I'm uh, talking about the fifth thing that Jesus said on the cross, which was, I thirst. Someone was teasing me about today's verse a few weeks ago, and they said, how are you going to spin that one out for 20 minutes? I like a challenge. But there's a lot in those two words, and it hasn't been difficult to find things to say, so buckle up. Now, as I've mentioned before, I grew up in central North Island, around this area here, Wanganui, Rangatiki, Tongariro, up to Lake Topo. And in the middle of that is Mount Ruapehu. The family homestead where my mother and her nine siblings were born and raised is in the hill country just south of Ruapehu, which really dominates the landscape. In Māori folklore, Ruapehu and Egmont were lovers. And I get why they saw them as people. Because Ruapehu does not look the same on any two days in a row. It attracts cloud like raw meat attracts flies, or church lunches attract ants. And the weather is volatile up there. There are so many days that you can't see the mountain at all, and the light can be quite different from one hour to the next. The only way that you know that it's Ruapehu is that it has two peaks. Ruapehu is Māori for two noses. Now you can take this approach of looking at different perspectives a step further. Now here is a Google Earth screenshot of what our place here looks like from the road. In fact, you can see that because there's my car there. It's big on colour and external appearance. So if you were driving past this church and you had a, this picture, you'd be able to say, yep, that's it. Now here is a satellite image of this place, which gives you <clears throat> a better feel for the bulk and location of the site. You can get an idea of how the land is being used that cannot easily be seen from the street. And finally, here is a map of Waltham, which shows our relationship with other local places like parks and schools and businesses. If you want to get here, it would be useful to have access to it because it also shows the main, main roadways and their names. The Google Earth picture, the satellite image and the map are all valid representations of our property here. Valid on their own terms, on their own perspective. Each have their own value. Likewise, <clears throat> today I want to look at Jesus' words, I thirst, through three different lens. The first and simplest is, <clears throat> excuse me, is here is a man dying an excruciating death who is parched. His mouth 
and his throat are as dry as this door. He does not so much say these words as croak them. The second lens is to dig a layer deeper and ask, was there any other significance that these words had for him? Was there something else that he wanted desperately as a dying man wants a drink? Something else that he thirsted for. And then the third lens is the satellite view. What else was going on that these words point to? Anyway, firstly, Jesus was thirsty. It's one of the most basic human needs that we have. We maybe can go three days without water before we die from dehydration. Yet we can go a long time without food. When I was a kid, the troubles in Northern Ireland were in full swing, and there was an imprisoned IRA guy called Bobby Sands who refused food. What's happened? Ah, okay. Who refused food for 66 days before he finally died. Took him over nine weeks. Experiencing thirst when nailed to a cross is on a path of hunger and exhaustion. It's an almost automatic reptilian brain type response. This is a human being like you, like me, and like any of us. This is not a deity pretending to be a human. This is a man going through great suffering. Jesus knows what it is to walk the path of human suffering. And this isn't to say that this was the worst death in human history, because it wasn't. We know that some people survived for three days on their cross. Think what that must have been like. And we humans have since come up with some particularly creative and excruciating way to kill each other over the centuries. Many that are more grisly than crucifixion. A Messiah who died was a real problem in the early church's evangelism to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Because you see, Messiahs were divine conquering rulers, much like King David had been centuries before. And Jesus didn't fit the bill here because A, he died, and B, it was a shameful death. Likewise, a God who suffered and died was also a problem to the early church's evangelism to their pagan neighbours because they grew up in the Hellenistic Greek culture of the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And their philosophers had surmised that if God were perfect, then he could not possibly change because to change was to live within time which God was outside of, outside of. Could not go from one state of being to another. In other words, there could not be a time when God was different from how God was now. Perfection, for them, precluded growth and precluded change. And God cannot suffer, because to suffer implies that you are dependent on somebody else's being. You're affected by another. 
which suggested that God is dependent on someone else, which, of course, God cannot be. Perfection for them required a sort of splendid isolation, a removal from relationships. Strangely enough, these ideas lurk in the background of our faith because the church in its first few centuries tried to do this intellectual job of blending the faith with the best of philosophy, which they thought were the Greek philosophers. And you can see examples of it still. The Roman Catholic doctrine that the communion elements become the literal body and blood of Jesus is based on some stuff that Aristotle taught. And the idea that humans are by nature immortal, well, that's from Plato. But Jesus, the divine son of God, God, suffered on the cross and was thirsty. He had needs that he could not meet for himself. And likewise, if you read the Old Testament, Jehovah or Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, is not portrayed as some distant, self-contained, immovable being. That description sounds to me more like Allah. Allah the unchanging, Allah the unknowing, Allah the above everything. The God that is revealed in the Old Testament is attributed with some very challenging things, like prompting the massacre of the Canaanites. But that God is a passionate lover of God's people, Israel. God mourns, we are told. God gets angry. And most challenging, God on occasions changes his mind. Yahweh, God the Father, is the hound of heaven, committed to redeeming his people to himself and ultimately saving the whole of creation. We pray to the Lord Jesus who knows what it is to be human because he walked this earth with us with all of its joys and sorrows. These words, I thirst, of all the seven sayings on the cross are the only ones that are self-referential, referring to how he is. It's all real. The tears, the welts from the whips, the nail holes, and his thirst. We can trust him with our struggles because he's been through some awful, awful stuff. I thirst points towards a God who suffers with his creation. Okay, so that's the first lens I want to use, the, the physical. The second one to look at is what else might he have been desperate for? What did he deeply thirst for? A drink, yep. But I also wonder if it, if it was his wandering creation who would now be restored. Because he knew that once he died, salvation was going to just flow like a stream in the desert, making all things green and good around it. I think he thirsted for us. And at this point, near death, he could almost taste it. He was so close. I was reading a, a book recently on what happened on the cross. And the author kept using the term transaction. 
Let's describe Jesus taking our sin on himself, becoming sin in exchange. Those of us who put our faith in him are then given his righteousness. I can see what he means, but I think the word transaction is very unfortunate. Because firstly, it's quite a soulless word. And secondly, it sounds like we did something. When I think of transactions, I think of buying the groceries. I get food, and the supermarket gets my cash. But Jesus is not a divine accountant or a divine checkout operator. He's the hound of heaven, seeking and saving the lost. Psalm 23 says, The goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But actually, the more accurate translation is, Goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. Jesus didn't die for you so that you had the option, the lifestyle choice, the ability to follow him and be saved. He thirsts for you like a dying man wants a drink. You are loved beyond measure. This is very personal. He's not up there on the cloud somewhere at the moment practicing his frisbee technique. If you've trusted him in the past, then by his spirit he's inside you, kicking at the sides of your life, wanting to transform you by his spirit into his likeness, into the image of God. If you've yet to turn to him in faith, then he desperately, desperately wants you to. He thirsts for you to bring you into the community that is his people, possibly even Oxford Terrace Baptist Church. Scripture, at its heart, is a story of a divine romance. God, Father, Son, and Spirit are like the jilted lover chasing us, his faithless crush. A God who gave us everything, if only we would receive it. The last lens is to stand back from the scene of the cross and see what we can see. And if you read the whole of this chapter, which is John 19, you'll see many things. John wrote in his prologue to his gospel, that Jesus was the divine word that became flesh and dwelt among us. As Eugene Peterson in the message put, puts it, and moved into our neighborhood, became incarnate, became one of us. He's both divine and human. And John also in his gospel records Jesus talking a lot about water. Think about it. In John 4, there is the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. He tells her about the living water that he can give that will mean that she will never thirst again. He returns to that theme, as Phil pointed out when he read before in John 7, and here on his last day, he is thirsty. The doorknob on that door is a dry tap. And shortly after his death, 
A Roman soldier spears his side and both blood and water flow out. Probably blood from his heart and water from the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart and the lungs. The living water is flowing at his death. John also presents Jesus as the Passover lamb, sacrificed for the sins of the world. This is the scripture that has been fulfilled, that one day there would be this ultimate perfect sacrifice that would fulfill or complete the law so that the sacrifices of animals were not needed anymore. From as far back as Genesis 3, there was this prophecy that the seed of the woman Eve would crush the head of the serpent, the Satan. Sin would be defeated. Jesus is that seed. Now the Passover lamb had to be perfect, without blemish, which Jesus was. He was sinless, without any broken bones. The story of the spear in his side tells us that his ribs were not broken and that he died before the Roman soldiers broke the legs of the thieves to hasten their death before dark. You can see that the idea of Passover lamb is the the metaphor, the image, the motif that John is constantly referencing in this chapter. Anyway, a final thought or two. Jesus was on the cross to defeat sin, Satan, and death. In that space, he suffered greatly. And in that suffering, we know that we have a God that gets us, that gets what it is to be human who understands what we go through life, through in life, who can empathize with us and comfort us from a place of real experience. And that dry place where the streams of living waters must have seemed a universe away from him, he thirsted for us, for you and for me. We were on his heart. On Easter Day, the tap that is in that very dry door will flow with water to represent what was achieved on the cross at such great cost. If you have business to do with the Lord today, please come down to the front during the final song. The musicians would like to come forward. moment please while we repair Rod's damage.